Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 114. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, a guest that I have been getting requests for pretty much nonstop for the last few months. You've flown onto my radar, man. The people are going to be happy because we finally got you on. Brian Glick, we're ready to feel the glick. How's it going, Brian? It's going great. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So you were first brought to my attention, actually, by Robert Deagle, friend of the show, who was saying, like, man, Brian Glick, you got to get this guy on. He's like exactly the kind of guy that you're looking for. So, Brian, my understanding is that you're one of the DDS homies and you're really best known for this conceptual and thoughtful approach that you apply to jujitsu. I've started following your Instagram and your Facebook, and I'm really loving it so far. But for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you give everyone just a quick introduction to who you are? Well, I'm a John Danaher and Henzo Gracie black belt. I've been training jiu-jitsu since about two, the year 2000. And I also own and operate a couple of martial arts schools, uh, jiu-jitsu schools out in Brooklyn. And I'm speaking to you from Brooklyn. So it's like my home base. And I've been working with John Danaher since uh, my very first day of jiu-jitsu. And over the course of that time, I've had a chance to train with a lot of a lot of really great practitioners and some well-known names in in jujitsu and in MMA. And I've been very fortunate to be able to to be around for that and to to be a student throughout these these past two decades. So, well, let me ask a question: When you started jujitsu, did you know that you were training with? you know, arguably the best instructor in the world? Or was that just like totally random luck? Because as I've talked about on the podcast before, you know, I came into this martial art not knowing much about it. I just picked a gym based on Google searches. And I realized after a year or two that there's a lot better gyms out there than the one that I chose. So I switched. But man, like you won the lottery on your first go. Did you know who you were going into train with? Or was that just like totally random luck on your part? Well, I knew in some ways because the person that I went to go see was Henzo Gracie. And at that time, the Gracies, as it is still true now, you know, the Gracie name was the thing that drew a lot of people. There wasn't the internet and there wasn't Google and there weren't that many avenues to be able to figure out what this thing was. You know, once you got a sense of what was going on and you saw some jujitsu or you heard about it, there weren't that many avenues to, to follow to get there. And so for me, I was lucky enough to meet somebody in around 1999 
who had done jujitsu and was doing jujitsu out in the West Coast. And he was a real zealot. I mean, he was a real early adopter and a big believer in it. And this is a guy who had done martial arts, traditional martial arts for years and years. He'd grown up doing them. So when we met, he had said, you know, I think there's a, I think there's a jujitsu school somewhere in Manhattan, like somewhere near you. So if you're interested, you know, why don't you go by? You should go find it. And so it took me some sleuthing to figure out what and where it was. And really what I had to go on was the Gracie name. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this was at a time where my only real resource was, you know, the yellow pages or the white pages. And I had to kind of track down the academy. And it wasn't easy. You know, I mean, the first place that I went to, it had just moved. It had moved out of a a common space in Manhattan that they had been renting. And it was the sort of place where there were a bunch of different martial arts going on. And they moved to a dedicated spot maybe a week before I arrived. And so I went to the wrong place first. And then the person who was working there was like, oh, you know, you should try this place. And I think this is the address. And they scribbled the name down on the back of a napkin. And I found my way over there and there were no signs and it was on the, you know, I had to take this like rickety elevator up and I had no idea what I was getting into. So, you know, really the the thing that drew me, the person I was originally drawn to was, uh, you know, was Henzo. And mm-hmm. so when I first showed up, it happened to be that the classes that Henzo was teaching were at night. And this was kind of like the, the A-team. You know, the people who were coming at night were considered the people who were very serious. And during the daytime, most of the daytime people were people who were working at night for one reason or another. And that class was taught by John Danaher and at the time, Sean Williams, along with whatever, because when I showed up, those they were still purple belts. So, you know, there were a few people rotating in who were brown or black belts, Matt, Sarah, Nikki, Sarah. Rodrigo Gracie. But at the time, I didn't really know what to expect. Now, as soon as I met John and I started training in that class, there was an immediate affinity. You know, I knew that something was right. I didn't know exactly what it was because I didn't know enough to be able to articulate it, but I knew that something was. This was a person who I was able to connect with. And for someone like me who had never done martial arts before, and I had never done any, I wasn't a very physical person. You know, I wasn't an athlete and I wasn't doing sports in high school or any of that stuff. To me, the fact that I was able to get a little bit of this stuff at the beginning was a testament to to this guy's ability to teach because I felt that I was, you know, not unteachable, but really pretty far down towards the bottom of the barrel. So there was that immediate connection. And then from there, it, you know, I didn't look back. Yeah, makes sense totally. And I mean, I, I can also completely relate as a guy who, you know, is not an athlete. I do jujitsu as a hobby and I was, I got into this because I've, I'd always wanted to do a martial art and I was looking for a fun activity to, you know, keep me busy and burn some calories. And I mean, the, really the one thing you can say about jujitsu is that like, unlike a lot of other martial arts, it keeps its promise. It is 
totally possible that a non-athletic, not the hugest guy or girl can go into jujitsu and become a total killer. <laughs> like it, it is totally possible. Whereas a lot of other martial arts, I mean, yeah, you know, you might be able to make like Taekwondo and stuff work, but if you're like 250 pounds and you're jacked, but jujitsu really does deliver on the promise of normal people being able to defend themselves. And, you know, something that I, I love about the story of Danaher and yourself also is that, you know, so many of the people that we pay attention to in the jujitsu community are basically people who are like professional competitive athletes, and that's what they're known for. And I think actually that's one of the things that holds jujitsu back and prevents it from really achieving the level of sports success that you see in like wrestling and judo is that we don't put that much time and thought into the coaching process and the instruction process. And in many ways, this podcast is a, a rebuttal to that, to the fact that we focus so much on the athletic side of things and not on the learning side of things. And you and John are so well known for the the mental approach that you guys take to the game. And in fact, that's something that I wanted to dig into a little bit deeper here with you today. We had talked earlier about discussing the dichotomy between methods and results. And this is something that we've alluded to earlier on the podcast, but basically the challenge that, you know, especially for a beginner, but even actually for someone who's experienced, it can be very easy to get discouraged because you don't see results immediately. It can also be the case that you give yourself false positives because you're doing things, you know, you're getting results, but that doesn't necessarily mean the methods you're using are the right ones, especially at a junior level. You see this a lot. So, mm -hmm. Brian, let's crack open the walnut here. Why don't you dig a little bit deeper into how you want to present this concept, talking about methods and comparing them to the dichotomy versus results? Well, I think that when we're talking about the training process in jiu-jitsu in particular that there does tend to be a focus on outcome and especially now i think it's embedded in some ways into the practice itself that there is a focus on outcome because there's so much emphasis on like on the submission mm -hmm. you know we for years and years We've talked about, you know, John has said this kind of famously that jujitsu is the science of control leading to submission. And that's been his working definition of jujitsu for as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have as an overarching structure to what jujitsu is an endpoint. And the endpoint is the submission. And it's, it makes a lot of sense because even if you go back to a self-defense perspective on this, you know, the fight has to end at some point. And I think that was one of the first revelations of jujitsu was that a fight can have an end. You know, it can have a, a firm conclusion. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're not thinking about this, like if you're not immersed in a martial arts practice, or concerns about your physical welfare, you don't really think about fights or conflicts as, have, as needing to have a conclusion. It kind of is this thing in itself. So the idea that, you know, a fist fight could end in something other than either like a detente or a knockout was really a light bulb on for me. And so, you know, the idea that, that jujitsu, the ultimate goal of, of jujitsu is the submission like that's kind of the full stop to the sentence it loads the practice in a way and i think for people who are just beginning 
it's such a powerful anchor that there's a tendency or a temptation to drive all effort into this one end. Mm-hmm. And the trick of it is that you do want to do that, but the methods that you use to arrive at a sense of control is not the same as the control itself. You know, sometimes it is, but often it's not. And so there has to be a sense of process that's built into the practice that will allow you to get from point A, wherever that is, you know, whether it's day one or day 1000, to, you know, the end point of what you're working on, if that makes sense. So I think that, you know, when we talk about, you know, method versus outcome, the outcome in, in like a very kind of concrete way is the goal is the submission. But the method to get there isn't always the submission. Mm-hmm. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. And I mean, I, I can echo that from my own personal experience. Yeah. I agree that there is something very attractive about submissions that leads to a lot of grapplers getting like tunnel vision on submissions. And in fact, you know, there are grappling variants that are extremely submission focused, sometimes at right. the expense of control. Right. And I went through what I think everyone went through, which is, you know, when I got to Blue Belt, I was starting to get good at this thing. You know, I was good enough at least that I could actually catch people in submissions, <laughs> unlike being a, a white belt punching bag. And I was just, I was totally into getting submissions. And that was all I cared about. Like, did I get submissions or not? I mean, there would be days where I would just get like ragdolled and get my guard passed and get mounted. But if I like managed to pull a rabbit out of the hat and submit the guy somehow, I thought I was totally awesome. And really, you're just giving yourself a bunch of false positives, right? Because that kind of approach is not repeatable. You know, if you get your ass kicked for 95% of the fight, (laughs) because you have no control, and the other guy's controlling you, but then just due to luck, you pull out a submission that doesn't make you the better fighter. And for me, the breakthrough moment was listening to Rob Bernanke talk about positional control. Mm. And his explanation was that jujitsu is really a game of percentages, right? That's what you want to do when you're in, if you're in my guard, things, maybe they could go 50, 50, right? 50, 50 is not good betting odds, but if I'm able to pass your guard, then maybe it's now 70, 30 in my favor. And if I'm able to mount you, maybe it's now 80, 20 in my favor. And if I'm able to technical mount you, maybe now it's 90, 10 in my favor. And of course, if I submit you, then it's 100, zero. So rather than thinking about the submission at all costs, my goal now is to focus on creating the highest probability of success for myself. And and that means control. That means focusing on control the whole way through. And the interesting thing I find, and I don't know if you find this, but when I'm sparring now, I achieve way fewer submissions now at black belt than I do when I was at blue belt. And this is even when I'm sparring against like, you know, purple belts, I submit people less often because my focus now is not getting the submission. It's maintaining and advancing control. And I go for the submission once it presents itself and it's inevitable. I don't try to force it. So that was a big mental change for me was realizing that yes, this whole position over submission thing is actually true (laughs) and a good strategy overall. Yeah, you know, there there are two things about that. I think, you know, one of them is that, yes, like there is a sense of progressive control that is, it takes a maturity in the practice to get to that place. And I think some people arrive there earlier than others, but 
that kind of thinking, you kind of have to have a certain, you have to have certain tools in the toolbox to, to get started building that. And I think at the, at the early, in the early part of training a lot of people, you know, they're still putting together, they're still like assembling the basic tools. And then after they've got like a couple of things, you know, they've got a hammer and a screwdriver and a saw, they can, they start to build something that looks more like the thing that they ultimately want to have. And so I think progressive, progressive control in the training is like, it's not exactly like a watermark or kind of a guidepost, but it is a good, a good measure in some ways of like you're advancing conceptually in the practice, taking it beyond like catching a submission. When I'm teaching, you know, my own students, I think it's very important like to draw a distinction between catching a submission, you know, when sometimes guys would say, you know, oh, you know, like you got to catch the arm or like he caught the leg. And, you know, jujitsu is not fishing. You know, you're not catching something. And although sometimes that does happen, you know, you'll find people do catch things in the scramble or out of a, an uncontrolled position, like, like as you were saying, you know, there are ways to get to, to get to a submission out of a thing that's not very controlled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But really, like the, the ideal, which is, I think, part of the art of jujitsu, the ideal is working progressively towards that. So you're not really catching things as much as you're guiding somebody into them or you're guiding the two of you into them. You know, I agree with that 100%. I also, you know, I think, I think also at the outset, there does, there tends to be this kind of partners, like kind of opponents versus partners mindset mm-hmm. that early on, I think, turns people away from this emphasis on process also, because it becomes a kind of contest. And you were saying this, I think, at the very beginning when we first started the, first started the show today. There is something about training jujitsu in particular, like it's not exclusively encompassed by the idea of a contest between two people. That's a part of it, right? But like the shifting percentages happens in the context of our working in a kind of, you know, jujitsu is very symbiotic in a way because it's a martial art that requires another person to practice. That's why, like, right now, especially during the pandemic, you're seeing everybody feeling like, you know, I don't know. like Yeah, jujitsu is a dance, right? There is no substitute yeah. for having a partner. I mean, I can relate to this, right? I've been in, you know, basically quarantine for a year now. So that's that's yeah. a year off the mats. Interestingly, that's not my longest layoff. But, <laughs> I, you know, I've been off here for a year. And I, you know, haven't gone through this before where, you know, I'm taking time off. I know that there is simply no substitute for having a training partner, right? This is not a situation where I can just like get out a grappling dummy and I will get the same level of quality training. And in fact, to the point where I don't even think it's worth it necessarily to get a grappling dummy. I mean, that's a a great marketing thing. It's a great way to make a few hundred bucks if you want to sell grappling dummies. But the beauty of jujitsu is not that there's an arm to extend or a leg to lock. The beauty of jujitsu is that you feel the resistance of a real human being and you learn to yeah. deal with that. And yeah, yeah, there's someone on the other end of the line. So to speak. exactly, you know, you're talking to somebody. Yeah. yeah. So your partner, when you're training in, in the class, like your partner is not your enemy. They are your dance partner and you win if both of you get better. And I think that's an area where, you know, if you want to talk about where methods and outcomes get blended, 
I don't think enough instructors talk about that, right? Most classes that I've seen, they've got something where, you know, there's like, I mean, we've kind of complained about this on the podcast before, but Mm. usually there's like a three stage structure of a lot of classes where there's like some sort of warm up, sometimes a pointless warm up. Then there's the technique area and then there's some sort of sparring afterwards. And not enough instructors actually say during that sparring, you know, your job here is not to win. Your job is to work with your partner to learn. And I think the problem is when you take new people and you throw them into sparring, like at first, this is a, a relatively terrifying thing because most of, most regular, normal, sane oh, people. I, yeah, I think it's absolutely terrifying. I, yeah. think, I think for new people, it's absolutely terrifying. Oh, yeah. And I think that's actually why we have such a high attrition rate of white belts, right? Like most normal, rational, sane people don't have experience getting into fights with people. right? So when you take two like two office workers and you say, okay, your job is to fight. Like, first of all, you're giving them the wrong message because that's not really the goal. And then second of all, once they start getting acclimatized to that, they develop an attraction to that part of the sport. And then they're focused not on improving and positional control. They're focused on like catching a diving guillotine at all costs, even if they give it the position, right? So I agree with you here. I think that this is a challenge that we as instructors face, which is to emphasize to people that when you're sparring, this is this is not a competition. Like no medals are awarded in the gym. There's a different place and a different time for that. This is about learning and about maximizing your experience with your partner here. Yes, you know, I, exactly. And and I think that when we talk about methods versus outcome, it's not only an individual or an individual level. I think that it works in this same context where there are two people working together. And I think what we're, what we're hinting around at is that the method that is used to cultivate, you know, sparring or rendori or positional training is often confused with what the result or the outcome is supposed to look like. And you see this in training where people are going all out or you often see it in situations where people are resistant to constraint inside of the training. So people are resistant to positional training or people are resistant to a changed pace or people are resistant to some other kind of like structure that's put on top of this otherwise totally kind of chaotic thing. And, you know, my experience has been that people like to talk about freedom. And I think that freedom can be, you know, you can have the freedom to do something or you can have like the freedom from something. And I think that in the context of Rendori, a lot of times you end up with the freedom to do more with some constraints. And Mm -hmm. the reason is because your effort and your attention is funneled by a structure. Yes. That leads you specifically into areas that you might not otherwise choose to go. This is a fascinating topic. I mean, this this is what Jocko Willink talks about is, you know, discipline equals freedom, right? It's a mm. total paradox. It doesn't make sense on the surface. But if you have discipline and you follow the rules and you restrict your behavior to a focus – eventually all of that process blends into the background and then your brain is kind of free to operate on a higher level. And then you can experience true freedom, like not the kind of freedom that like a toddler has where you can run around and scream, but like the freedom where your mind and your body are a machine and they're trained to do these base level functions. So now you can execute at a higher level. 
yeah, your choices become your actual choices or closer to them instead of you're being run by a process that you're not aware of, you know, or that you're less aware of. And I think, you know, Steve, I think the trick of it is that, you know, that discipline equals freedom, you know, something like that, like that to me, that is a kind of an outcome. You know, it's not really a method. And by which I mean, like the developing the discipline is the method, like the things that you would use and you need to create the structure is the method. And so I think sometimes it gets a little bit confusing when people are entering into like, you know, if you're a white belt and you're getting started in a class and there isn't any structure and you're thinking to yourself, well, I have to be disciplined. Well, what exactly is going to be the method that you use to get there? You know, this goes back to like a systems-based approach. You know, Danaher is known, you know, has brought brought to the fore this idea of a systems-based approach to jujitsu. Mm-hmm. And part of the function of that is to really strengthen the method by which you get to a place where the outcome is impossible. So yeah, you know, I agree with you entirely. I think that when people are teaching jujitsu or students are learning jujitsu, that having a kind of structure or a guidepost, you know, a couple of guide rails along the way, it feels constrictive if you're comparing it to nothing at all happening, you know, like, you know, walking down a street, it can feel, you know, you can feel constrained if you're used to walking, you know, in an open field. But if you want to get from point A to point B, it helps to have the path that's been cut outlined for you a little. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, being a student is important in those moments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what's interesting is this is not some new or novel crazy thing, although I think it's relatively new in jujitsu, because like we yeah. talked about earlier, much of jujitsu is unrefined when it comes to the the learning models that we use. But this right. is a concept that has been, you know, with martial arts for probably thousands of years. I mean, I remember hearing this ancient Asian parable about this exact thing and about, you know, students and how at first they almost didn't even understand what they were trying to do, but they were given a process by the master and just you follow that process over and over and over again until it becomes internalized. And that's very much what you're describing here, right? Is basically something that actually Josh Waitzkin has talked about in his book. He calls it numbers to leave numbers. What he calls it, which I think makes a lot more sense in our context, is he calls it form to leave form. And basically what he's saying is like, you practice the forms, you basically go through the process over and over until they become internalized. And you don't even need to think about them anymore. Because once that happens, your brain doesn't need to waste cycles trying to figure out how to do these these movements that you've internalized and you're now free to operate on a higher level. So the, the example I would give is like when you're a white belt, if you're trying to armbar someone, you're sitting there thinking like, okay, where's my hand go? Where does my leg go? Oh shit, where, do I grab the elbow? Do I grab the tricep? Like there's so many little micro details that you can't even get anything done. But right. once you've practiced that hundreds and hundreds of times, all of that stuff moves into your muscle memory and then you don't have to think about it. You can just do it. And that frees up your brain because now instead of trying to remember, okay, what are all of the steps to this stupid move? You can start thinking about strategy and you can think about, okay, I want to arm bar this guy. How can I deceive him into thinking I'm doing something else 
Or how can I get Kazushi to make this armbar more likely? So your brain is now operating at a much higher level. And that should really always be the goal when it comes to refining your skill is internalizing one level of knowledge to the point where it's it's transparent. You don't even know you're doing it anymore. And then your brain is free to operate at the next level up. You know, I think this is a this is a nice idea. And what's really interesting about it is that I think traditional martial arts, you know, had this as a paradigm early on. And a lot of jujitsu, especially early on, was a reaction to like the rigidity of kata, rigidity of like a predetermined set. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like waned a little bit. Like you still hear people resisting it. But when jujitsu first came around, you know, traditional martial arts were, they were, the practice itself was built around kata and, and form for a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them. And those pieces had come into to being not just as like, you know, dance form, but as rigid structures that would allow a person, like a, there was no professional, you know, really at the time, like someone who was like a lay person to be able to gain access to some of the fundamental components of what that system was. And then you had, you also had like a developmental structure where there was a kind of hierarchy, like a ladder you would climb inside each of these things, you know, like Shotokan or Chokushin or what, you know, whatever you would kind of work your way up. And I think that what happened was that the the form took over the content in a way. And as a result, the the tail was wagging the dog. Yes. When jujitsu came around, people were at a place where they were so frustrated, I think, or not frustrated. They weren't frustrated, but I think they felt like the promise had kind of evaporated in a lot of the, the martial arts at the time. Mm -hmm. and. So jujitsu, I think part of it was seeking to restore a balance or restore, swing the pendulum back the other way, which is why, you know, there was a very clear approach to dojo culture. There was a very, and is still, you know, a very relaxed way of approaching the classroom and a resistance to giving, not giving instruction, technical instruction, but resistance to structuring Rindori for fear of returning back to a place where, you know, the form controls everything and there's no substance. Exactly, exactly. But there is a middle place. You know, you can have them both coexisting. So long as jujitsu doesn't become too rigid, you know, in its approach, it really does have the potential to like bring these two things together, which I think it does for a lot of people, you know. Yeah, yeah. And what you've touched on there, I think, is something that I wanted to get into, which is like, it's all well and good to say, you know, follow the method, follow the process. But what do you do when you're following the wrong process? I mean, in your right. case, for example, right. you know, you started training under Henzo and Danaher, right? That's a, I mean, at that point, you can, knowing what we know now, you can't really complain about landing in, in there and following those methods and those processes. <laughs> but you could just as easily have wound up training like one of those no-touch death martial arts, right? Where you're like right, knocking right. people out with mind bullets. And there right. you've got the sensei telling you, just trust the process, just trust the method. Right, right. I mean, if you follow that, you're going to waste your entire life training something that doesn't work. And right. so the challenge that new people often face is 
and I understand where the frustration comes from here for a lot of new people. They're told that there's a method to our madness, follow this method, you know, do what we say here, but they don't yet have the knowledge to know if the instructor is to be trusted and if the instructor is setting them on the right path, right? Like in my example, you know, I just, I didn't know anything about jujitsu when I started training. I just did a bit of Googling and looked into the UFC a bit and decided this was the martial art for me. I could have just as easily wound up training like strip mall taekwondo. And 20 years later, I, I still might not actually have known that like there's massive limitations to that fighting style. So you've touched on this very, very well here. There has to be a pendulum that kind of swings back and forth where, yes, you balance the need to follow a process and to follow the method, but you also have to keep in mind the results that you're achieving. And you can never allow your focus to swing too far into one direction versus the other. Yes. And, you know, I think... Well, there are a couple of things, you know, one of them is that for some people, I think Taekwondo or Kali or Kung Fu is the right thing. And, you know, is it the right thing if they get, you know, if they're in a street fight and they get taken down? No. But in terms of their, like their overall approach, you know, their kind of their natural affinities and their temperament, you know, those things are beneficial. They do have limitations. I agree with you. And then, you know, jujitsu has limitations also, especially if you do three classes and you get your, get your arm broken and you never come back to the martial arts. You know, I think that that's also a, you know, that can be a limiting factor. But, you know, you raise a really good question, which is what does the student at the very beginning of the process, what's their, what's their true north, right? And, I think that to some degree at the outset, a student needs to be able to, first of all, you when you show up to a place, you have to use some of your intuitive match. It's like when you're meeting somebody for the first time. You know, there are people with whom you have a kind of natural affinity for one reason or another. And it may not be instant, but over the course of a few hours or a few classes, you get a sense of whether or not this is sounding like and seeming like the right thing for you. And I was, I was talking about this a little bit, you know, when I first began training at the Enzo Gracie Academy, there was something that aligned with me about John's approach, about his teaching. It was, it was very rigorous. Even the expectations were very high, even for somebody who was just beginning, but it was in a, it was not in a very performative or aggressive way. And so I had room to make my own decisions and also my own mistakes in the process of starting to uncover whether or not this was something for me and whether or not this approach was something that I, I believed in. And everybody arrives at the training with something a little bit different, as you know. Some people show up and they are physically monsters. You know, they're people who are athletes or they've trained in other martial arts or they've worked their way, you know, through college sports or things like this. And then there are people who show up and they have experience in other ways or they're or they're on the other side of it and they're much smaller or they don't have any experience. You know, people show up and the needs are different and the affinity is different. Like the thing they're drawn to is different. So 
you know, instructor and student, like it's not always one size fits all. There were plenty of people who came through for whom John was not the right teacher. You know, I don't know who they are really because they left a long time ago or they left along the way. And, you know, just like, you know, I'm not the right teacher for everybody. And so I think to some degree, there is initially like an affinity, right? Right, right, right. On the other side, there is a sense in which you have to kind of give it a go in order to know what you're doing, like in order to know what you're getting into. So if you're too critical at the outset, then you run the risk of putting up too many barriers. You know, all of these things kind of fold together. It's interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with this book. It's a book called Mastery by a guy named George Leonard. No, I'm going to write it down, though. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's it's really a great book. And for years and years, we've given this book away to new students, like people who are, you know, on the verge of Bluebell. We give this book to them. And, you know, it's not a Bible of mastery, but it's a good set of descriptions about some of the ways that mastery works. And so he starts the book out by describing three different types of practitioners. And you have the person who is there just to kind of see see what it's like, you know. I think he calls it like this is the dabbler or something like this. Like someone who is just there to like test the waters, you know, they want to put their toe in the water and they're not sure and they're not certain and they tend to be like really enthusiastic, but but they're there to kind of go from peak. You know, they're interested in like the, the successes of it all. And they're also very quick as the name kind of implies, they're like kind of quick to move on. Yeah. And so I think that some people show up where like they're just kind of like figuring it out and they they are encouraged by successes that they may have but then you know like when those things tend to fade they're like you know there's not that much there for them so you know like that's kind of one sort of person he talks about he goes into depth in that and then like on the other side of the spectrum is like the person who is the, the obsessive and like that's the person who like dives in like instead of scooting across the surface the way like someone who is dabbling does this is the person who's like the scuba diver. Like they go all the way down and they want to know everything and they want to like kind of suck the juice out of the practice right away. And, you know, this is like, they got to, you know, they want to get everything exactly right. And like, they become kind of obsessive. I think you just to reward a degree of obsession and like the obsessive is the kind of person who, can make upward progress. They rise quickly and then they kind of fall quickly again. And it's this kind of process of going from like exhilaration to like deep despair. And so when you show up as that kind of person, like the experience is from like peak to peak and from valley to valley. And it's a very uneven thing, right? And I think we've all trained with people like that. Like some people, this kind of reminds me of like the the Mike Tyson or the Ronda Rousey mindset, right? Where when they're on, they're on. But when when that obsession wanes, they're off completely and they can't get back on the horse, right? That kind of, I think we've all trained with people like that. And, and those people can achieve incredible heights. But to your point, right? Like there's a limit to that approach of mastery. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's not to take anything away from anybody. I think that's an approach. And then people can show up, I think, with that mindset early on, even without really having trained. 
like bringing that in from other experiences that they've had. And then, you know, so that, that sort of look at what the training is, like it drives people in another direction. He talks about one other category of person, which will be familiar, I think, to people who do jujitsu, which is the hacker. And like, the hacker is like endlessly tinkering with stuff, you know? So like, kind of unlike the other two, like the person who is hacking is always at this, like there are no peaks or valleys really because they're always kind of fiddling around with the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it's not that there's no progress, I think, in his mastery worldview for this. Like there, it's not that there's no progress at all. But there is a kind of cyclical thing that keeps a person like in a in an orbit. And so, you know, like kind of back to your original question, you know, like about like a student who's coming in. I think that we bring different things in. I think some people are there. Some people show up and their interest is in like dabbling and kind of seeing where it's going to go. And then you have people who are obsessive and then you have people who are there who like want the minutia, but like progress is too scary mm -hmm. in some ways, you know? And when you're meeting with a new, like when you're meeting an instructor, I think that a good instructor doesn't let you off the hook too easily if you have like any of these traits or any mixes of these traits. In other words, like there is something that is challenging to you about the way that person is approaching jujitsu. And I don't know if this makes sense to you, but I think sometimes people have a concept of how they want to learn and how they want their, like how they want jujitsu to look for them. And if something doesn't match with that, then they're quick to dismiss. Mm -hmm. My experience with both John and Enzo was that although overall the experience of being a student was rewarding and progress-based, I didn't really get the thing that I thought I was there for. I ended up getting something else, which turned out to be much more valuable. So when people are starting or you know trying to figure out if the instructor like knows something, I think that you also have to take into account what you're bringing as a student into. So there is an element in which you have to be your own psychologist in the process of really becoming a serious student. Yeah, that's that's a really, really awesome point. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough in, in the jiu-jitsu landscape, which is what is the what is the obligation of the student? When you start jiu-jitsu, of course, from day one, the expectation is that the instructor is basically doing all of the thinking. But I think a good instructor right, right. will ultimately encourage the student to take ownership of their path. We actually had a, a patron of ours, actually, who runs the Walking with the Tengu podcast, and yeah. he talked about the Japanese mental model of Shuhari which basically describes the three stages of, of mastery. And the first stage is you kind of imitate people. So you imitate their behavior because when you come into something stone cold, you have absolutely no idea what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. But you don't stop there at just imitating. The second stage is at some point you have to start breaking from tradition. You have to start questioning things, you know, well, okay, well, why do I have to put my hands here? Why do I have to 
you know, coil my elbows? Are there exceptions to that? And then the third phase of mastery is you start to innovate. You start to forge your own path. And I think the problem is that for a lot of people, they get stuck in phase one and they're just imitating forever. And that's kind of where I think you know, not just jujitsu, but any, any educational path can get dangerous because it is important to follow the methods, right? But at some point you also need to keep an eye on, like you said, your North star, what are the, what are the results that you're really looking to achieve out of this? What are the outcomes that you want? You don't want to get laser focused on the outcomes to the point where you start making mistakes and getting false positives or false negatives, but you have to, at some point, start taking ownership of your own path. And I think the way that you described it as a pendulum is very, very apt. You know, on one hand, methods are important, but on the other hand, achieving the outcome you want is also important. And you need to constantly be balancing that blade and making sure that you're, you're not taking shortcuts in either direction. Yes, I agree with that. And again, I think that the, there's theory and there's practice and jujitsu is, it's amazing in that it allows somebody to bring these two things together, that you can only be so theoretical. The rubber really meets the road in the training. And when you're physically working through things, it's an acid test for how well your approach is lining up with the reality. And one of the things that's such a challenge right now, I think, is because of the lockdown and because people's access to regular training with a partner or with groups of people is so restricted that part of the training where you do have a, have like a way of accessing, like implementing rather, the the stuff that you've been thinking about and working on and planning and preparing is absent. And that's a real disconnect. It makes it very difficult for the the system to work properly. Mm -hmm. You know, like the gears have to turn. And if they're not lining up, like if the teeth don't line up, then like nothing happens in the machine. So you, you have these two gears, you know, you have the theoretical, you have the planning side of it, you have the preparation, you have the methods and then you have the implementation of it and it's only when those two things are working together that you really are able to make something move so i think that that's a that's a really good point that's a really good point well let me close this off by asking a question that is always going to come up when you're telling people to trust the process right false positives and false negatives People make this mistake all the time. I've heard Annie Duke refer to this as the resulting fallacy. She talks about this extensively in her book, Thinking in Bets, which is an awesome, awesome book if you want to kind of learn about how to get the best out outcome from a process. But this is very common in jujitsu, right? Like, let's say that a 40-year-old, relatively scrawny, unathletic computer programmer shows up to his first day in class. He's paired up with a 25-year-old lifetime athlete who outweighs him by 50 pounds. One of those guys is going to go home thinking he's a badass and the other guy is going to go home thinking he sucks. And the problem is that, you know, the result here is going to wind up being totally divorced from the actual methods that they used, right? Like maybe the scrawny dude actually was doing everything totally right, 
but just it takes a long time to follow that process before you start to see the results. Whereas maybe the, you know, the athletic guy was doing everything wrong, but he's going to get a lot of false positives, at least in the beginning, because just because he's got advantages other than technique. And in an absence of technique, those other advantages really make a difference. Now, if you can wave a magic wand and flash forward many years to the point where these guys are brown or black belts, the story's probably different. But all the same, this is a challenge when you're prescribing methods to people, especially like at a white belt and even a blue belt level. Do you have any advice to people to make sure they don't get caught in that resulting fallacy where they're they're thinking that they're doing a good job because they're getting the outcome they want, or simultaneously they're thinking they're doing a bad job because they're not getting the outcome that they want? How do you help shatter people of that mindset? So I think it's a challenge because I think there's a lot of things that are coming at you early on in the training, as we had talked about, that being asked to put into practice the things that you know and to do it under stress and to do it with people who are more experienced or physically intimidating or any of these other things, that that's always hard. And the advice that I would give to somebody is to say there are things that can be replicated. And one easy way of figuring out if you're giving yourself the wrong cues is to try to replicate what you've done with another person or in another training session. So if I'm able to to do a triangle, like I've, I've learned something or I've practiced something and, you know, it's this triangle entry and it works with somebody. I can't leave the scene of that and then conclude that it's going to work in every single case all the time. I have to reinforce it with evidence that supports my theory that it works all the time, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so the more times you do it, and the more experience you have with it, the more familiar you become with it, not only are you getting better at doing it, but you're also seeing the times where you've tried it and it doesn't work. And so we were talking at the, at the very beginning of the show about like percentages. And I think one way of looking at your effort is to consider not are you 100%, but what is your ratio of successes to, to failure? And if your ratio of successes is higher over a time, like over a, a longer period of time, that's a good indicator that you're on the right track. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, in jujitsu, we can only really ever be on the right track. There is no airtight technique. And if you go back and you look 10 or 15 years ago, there were things that were considered totally unstoppable, which a purple belt would be able to stop now. Mm -hmm. You know, there were techniques that were considered just devastating in, you know, 2005. And if you showed them to somebody in, you know, 2020, 2021, they would have the answer right away. It would be almost like embedded in their their experience of what you just do it. Yeah. So I think that sort of approach, rather than thinking of things as being absolutely successful, you know, or you having a success rate of 100%. If you are doing something early on in your training and you have a success rate of 55%, okay, that's a good indicator that you're going in the right direction. Dude, if, if you're a white belt and you have a success rate of 55%, and in my opinion, you're a freaking prodigy. <laughs> exactly. You're doing great. And I think the challenge is that the mindset of the person who is at 55% is often that 
you know, that they're successful at what they're trying to do 55% of the time. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're looking at the other 45% of the time where things are not working and they're looking at that as a huge number. Yeah. So that's a good direction. And the, the other thing about that is it's self-contained, Steve. So in a way, you're able to get feedback and pull new information in from your instructor or from your own experience. But at the end of the day, you're responsible for your own results. And you can make that, you can gauge your progress in that way, independent of whatever else is happening. So it's great for you to have an instructor or feedback from somebody where your percentage, you can track your progress going from 55 to 60 to 65 and up. Mm -hmm. So that's always helpful, but it's not always possible. And you can still do it. There are plenty of people who make progress on their own in a given domain without having a lot of feedback. You know, you see people who come out of, you know, people have terrible, terrible teachers and are able to overcome that through their own means and methods. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that that's a, a great bit of closing advice there. Uh, you know, one, one thing that you mentioned, which I think is very key is kind of learning to think in terms of percentages, probabilistic thinking, instead of just looking for silver bullets that work all the time. Because like you said, there is no airtight solution in jujitsu. It also sounds like you're advocating a bit for the kind of using the scientific method to break down and analyze your techniques. And I think that's an important mindset shift that really makes a difference if you want to get better in jujitsu, which is to approach jujitsu like a scientist would, whereas you're not necessarily trying to prove yourself right, but you've got an idea and you're, you're kind of actively, as my brother would say, trying to break your idea. You're basically, you know, you're not going in with an, a hypothesis and being like, I hope this is right. How can I prove this right? But rather you might have an idea and you hit it with everything you possibly can to see if you can break it and to see if it can withstand that kind of scrutiny. And that's where I think what you're saying about taking ownership of your own path ultimately comes into play and becomes very important. So, Brian, thank you so much for your time. I guess before we close this off, any any closing thoughts or advice to listeners on this topic of methods versus outcomes? Good question, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> you know, ultimately, I think that if you are interested in going Further, if you're interested in sustainable practice, if you're interested in longevity and really developing in jujitsu over the long haul, that considering both outcomes and methods will be important for you. And if you can accept that sometimes the methods don't look the way that you might think, that you'll be able to settle into a way of approaching the training that will lead you closer to the goal that you're ultimately looking for. I always think about running because I think a lot of people run and they're interested in the outcome and they hate running. You know, I don't know if this makes sense at all, but you know, mm-hmm. I think there are plenty of people out there who will run a marathon, not necessarily because they like marathons, but because the process of it is what they, is what they understand to be important. You know, they're happy about the outcome, but the process is the thing that they really that, that really feeds them. In terms yeah. of book recommendations, that what was that book that you recommended? Mastery. Yeah, it's called Mastery uh, by a guy named George Leonard, and he was. I mean, you can get it on Amazon. Looks like it's on Audible as well, and it seems pretty short too. Yeah, it's a short book. He wrote another book about Aikido because I think that was his martial art. But it's a great book. It's a short read. It's a good discussion of mastery, especially for people who haven't thought about it too much before. 
Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Well, if people want to follow you, if they want to see your work, where can they go to do that? I'm on Instagram. You can find me there. And I'm, I have a YouTube channel, which if you just search my name should come up. And anyone who wants to reach out to me can do that through Facebook or Instagram. And if you're in Brooklyn, my school is Brooklyn BJJ. So you can see it at brooklynbjj.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brian. And of course, to all of our listeners, if you want to support us, I mean, it's our Patreon and our patrons that keep the show afloat here. You can join the team at patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. Really, that's the single best thing that you can do to, to help us keep the lights on. It really personally means a lot to myself and Matt when people support us there. We will definitely make it worth your while. You'll get a whole bunch of value adds like access to our community discord. Matt and I will provide narrated rolling feedback for you guys. A lot of benefits to joining there. So please do consider it if you haven't already patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. Additionally, you can also go to the mothership, the website bjjmentalmodels.com, where we've got a whole database of all of these concepts. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store if you want to pick up our gi patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. bjjmentalmodels.com slash join if you want to get on our awesome mailing list. Thousands of people on there already. And of course, you can check us out on Facebook and on Instagram. Brian, thanks so much, man. This was an awesome, really deep chat. Really enjoyed having you on. Something that I've really been looking forward to exploring, and I hope it's helpful to a lot of people. Thanks again for coming on to the podcast. Love to have you on again in the future. And to all of the listeners, thanks for listening and talk to you guys next time.